you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So today I'm really happy to welcome to the show Betty Chen, co-founder of Akala Network and Laminar Protocol. Welcome to the show, Betty. Thank you, Jamie, for having me. So Akala is primarily a cross-chain stablecoin platform based on Substrate, Polkadot Substrate, and a fundamental part of the Polkadot ecosystem. You focused on powering this cross-blockchain open finance applications, and it's interesting why you call it open finance, not DeFi. I guess we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, and it allows you to send and receive USD across any blockchains connected to the Polkadot network. But more than that, as I understand it, there are kind of four main primitives or building blocks that make up Akala, and we'll again unpack that a little bit later. So some of the reasons why I wanted you on the show, you're one of the leading projects working on Polkadot and Substrate right now, and I believe it's the ambition to become the parachain for, for DeFi, or as you refer to it, open finance. You have a very close working relationship with the Web3 Foundation, uh, which is run by Polkadot, and you received a grant to develop the Akala stablecoin. In fact, I believe they, they reached out to you and the team directly to make this happen. Um, and Akala is actually a collaboration between two organizations established in Asia, Southeast Asia, Polka Wallet and Laminar Protocol. I believe you're from the Laminar Protocol side, um, based out of New Zealand, and the Polka Wallet team are from uh, mainland China. Um, and uh, so Laminar Protocol um, is an open finance platform for synthetic assets, so similar to synthetics, uh, and allows margin trading uh, with the ambition of becoming a consortia. And I know uh, a, a topic that's really interesting is around governance for you guys and what you refer to as this progressive pathway to decentralization. But I think what's really interesting about you as a, as a team, as a project, is on the one hand, you're very much at the heart of the Asian crypto scene um, and, and Web3 ecosystem. But at the same time, you've attracted a great mix of both uh, Western and Asian VC. Um, and uh, so this is, this is kind of uh, really interesting for other founders to understand how you've managed to bridge both of those worlds. So looking forward to going deep with you on all of that. Sounds fabulous. So uh, normally I, I kind of do a quick summary of the origins of the guests to contextualize them. So I'll, I'll do my best to summarize it. If I've missed anything out, obviously feel free to elaborate. Um, it's more likely I've not fully captured your entire history that's got you here. <laughs> um, so uh, as I understand it, you, you started um, with a Bachelor of Engineering at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Um, you then did an MBA at the University of Otago. I don't actually know where that is. Uh, that's also New Zealand, but the uh, south is part of, the, of New Zealand. 
Ah, okay. All right. It sounded like Japan or something to me, but there you go. <laughs> where, where the best best wine uh, was made in Otago. <laughs> oh, well, I should know that. Now you've embarrassed me. Now I look uncultured. Um, <laughs> so you, you also went to the uh, School of Business at Duke University, which was your second a- MBA from what I could see, and you helped found uh, the blockchain club there. And then you went on from 2005 to 2010 to do a number of different engineering and consulting roles, um, both at HIT or HIT, I don't know how you pronounce it, and First Data Corporation. In 2009, you were, I guess, appointed as Asia uh, New Zealand Young Leader for the Asia New Zealand Foundation, um, where you were a representative and chosen to participate in the Shanghai World Expo in 2010. And uh, 2011 to 13, you worked at SAP, I believe, in mainland China as a consultant project manager working with clients like VW, Cinepec, uh, Coca Cola, PetroChina. And once again, you were recognized as the Shooting Star Award. I guess how prophetic um, they clearly saw uh, your potential as you were moving through the ranks. Um, and it looked like you, you, you focused uh, specifically in the vertical around um, automotive. I believe you also worked with, with Peugeot Finance in China as well, right, in 2014. What was it that you ended up kind of f- focusing specifically in, in, in automotive? Was it just because that's the, the, the clients that you're working on at SAP or was it something that specifically interested you? No, I think it just, it just happens. Because <laughs> uh, as, as a professional product manager and project manager, uh, you know, you, you basically go in and solve a problem and then it doesn't matter, you know, uh, which industry your client is in. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, So then uh, I could see that you worked on the first kind of decentralized thing that I could see in the CV was an advisor to something called uh, Ahu, Ahau, um, which was a decentralized data and digital identity management platform built on Maori principles and values, which sounds fascinating. Firstly, did I pronounce it right? And um, did I describe it correctly? Uh, Yes, Ahau, yes. That's right. How? And, and um, so what was it that drew you into that project? And was that the kind of first foray into understanding decentralization of data and exploring things like identity? So that actually, yeah. So, so I mean, that actually happened um, after I've made a career transition into blockchain. Yeah, at the, at the back of all of these things is actually uh, developed personal interest into blockchain and crypto and spending more and more of my personal time trying to figure out how does Bitcoin thing work and how Ethereum work. And then I made a career transition uh, around that time, uh, moved from uh, the South Island of New Zealand, the beautiful part of New Zealand, to the city of New Zealand, uh, Auckland. Um, and then I worked in a, a, a blockchain company there as a product manager. Um, and then along that journey, uh, I met uh, a lot of uh, startups. Uh, and then one of them that I'm very fond of, more from an idealistic or, uh, you know, sort of the passion point of view is Ahau, uh, because of, you know, the, the sort of the things that they try to address um, and also the value standpoint they come from uh, is very much aligned with what, what I actually want to achieve in the decentralized uh, uh, decentralization world. So, yeah, so, so hence, you know, I help them out a little bit on advisory or product uh, development and things like that. 
Ah, so so this was the thing that must have come out of centrality.ai then, right? So you're project manager there from 2018 to 2019. And that is a blockchain venture studio. Uh, and I believe you did everything from product leadership, product management, um, from everything from platforms, protocols, and dApps. And you even did some uh, token design, right? You, you designed a dual token economy um, as well for, was that for an exchange, a decentralized exchange? Uh, it is just for a, a blockchain platform uh, uh, itself. So, so a standalone uh, blockchain that uh, requires a, a special type of uh, token models. Um, and then, you know, even back then, we recognized that uh, just the native token itself uh, may not be sufficient to actually power the operations uh, on the platform because business require uh, stability as well as predictability of the costs. Uh, hence. The, the you know the attempt to actually design uh, algorithmic uh, sort of the stabilization of the uh, of the currency on the platform to be used as a unit of account if you like yeah ah, I see okay and so is that the same thing or is that different to the project that you managed um, which was Singular X which was this decentralized exchange on Ethereum uh, yeah so that's a separate product uh, within the whole company portfolio that uh, I was working in and Singular X is just a decentralized exchange. Um, uh, you know, like it's, uh, it's, it's nothing too special about it. It's just like, you know, it's, it's one of those uh, decks that the company has in their portfolio and then has a bunch of, you know, customers that we need to serve and then continue improvements on the, on the platform itself. Yeah. Understood. Okay. Well, it looks like they kept you busy there um, for for that first year, um, and then you uh, co-founded Laminar, uh, and uh, you were kind of a, a chief operating officer. You still are. Um, so that was founded in August two thousand and nineteen, um, and then uh, pretty much um, straight after you co-founded Akala Network in in October, I believe. So it'd be really interesting to understand. Um, how you led to, to co-found both of those things almost simultaneously and what was it that was this your first first venture that you did and you know why that particular problem or opportunity set uh yeah i mean good question because you know when i look back um, a lot of this looks like luck and coincidence and, and probably a lot of them are not um especially you know people you meet in your career uh it's probably made uh, you know, sort of the sort of the make or break or the transition into different pathways in your life, right? So in uh, my previous work, um, I actually met all my co-founders there. Um, so I was the product manager. Um, so I looked after the product roadmap um, and also help with a little bit of product marketing um, and also look after development team. So it's quite a diverse role that I'm in. And then my other co-founder, uh, so Brian, uh, so he's a very, very talented uh, engineer, uh, probably the 200% nerd in the team right now. So, um, and he's the uh, engineer as well as later, he got promoted to be the product architect because of his talent got discovered, right? So I worked very closely with him uh, back then. Um, and also my other co-founder, uh, Ray Tao uh, at Lemina. Uh, so he was the CTO at the time. So he's already an uh, entrepreneur uh, on his own, on his own rights, uh, prior to all of the things that we've done before. So uh, you, you can probably already tell the three of us, although we have quite a common passion, so we are all very much into Web3. So even back then, uh, you know, when Compound wasn't this hot for, you know, you farming, we were already personally, you know, uh, using MetaMask, using all the apps 
and then uh, putting uh, our money and converting it to DAI and then doing uh, DeFi and, and lending and earning interest and just, just couldn't help ourselves to get so excited about what this actually means uh, and to everyday people, right? Because, you know, uh, back then, uh, you know, there wasn't this thing very, very hot to be you farming or, or DeFi, and very, very few people are putting their interest in the area. But we were just like almost every day, you know, when we got free time, we actually, you know, discuss these things and also uh, think about what we can do with it. And then that kind of uh, later on evolve into, you know, we start thinking more seriously uh, into what we want to do, you know, with, with our career and also what we want to create. Because I think in, in crypto, probably in tech, is like uh, the window of opportunity is very, very short. Um, and then now we've got, you know, people actually with complementary skills, uh, I would call. Um, and also uh, we all have, you know, background in uh, finance and also connections in the, in the field. So we thought, you know, we want to do something quite focused and also be able to deliver products, right? Not, not quite platform, but products that can actually deliver value directly to people. Um, and how do we do it? And, and then, you know, that's where Lemina actually come from. So we want to bridge the gap between the traditional finance, which we have good connection with, and uh, those people as, uh, actually back us to do this project. Um, and then also bridge the gap between that and then the crypto world, which we know very well we can build products on um, and bridge both liquidity as well as traders and users, etc. So we, we thought that we actually make a good contribution to Web3 uh, and blockchain in general. So, so that's how, how the whole thing actually got started. Um, and then uh, very quickly, uh, we've built our prototype. So I think uh, it's only like, uh, I think November that year, we actually went to Singapore for the FinTech Festival um, and then bought our demo products. Uh, that it's a platform completely built on Ethereum uh, that does synthetic asset and also margin trading, right? So it was quite impressive that a lot of people, you know, got uh, quite interested in the product. Um, but also at the same time, we recognize that to actually build a product that is uh, highly efficient, high performance that can compete with the traditional finance trading platform, we need something much better. Not, not at the protocol level, but at the underlying uh, sort of ledger level that the technology needs to be uh, upgraded from a dial up uh, to a high performance uh, co connectivity or internet, uh, uh, you know, as an analogy. Um, so uh, we decided to use uh, Substrate. Um, and then uh, one of the reasons is being, uh, we've been building on Substrate uh, for quite a while, uh, even before this project. So in our previous work, uh, we have been uh, one of the, probably the first commercial teams building on and also contribute to the Substrate codebase. Um, and then way back when, uh, when we evaluating uh, different technology stacks, uh, you know, Substrate and Polkadot and Parity team actually stuck out. Um, there is a number of reasons which, which I can go into a bit more later or now if you want me to. No, yeah, let's, let's, let's go into it because I think it's interesting. Um, you know, obviously, I'm aware that Polkadot has a, a really strong ecosystem in Asia generally. I know Gavin would put a lot of time into uh, personal time into traveling around China specifically and building up that ecosystem. Um, but it's interesting to know, as I understood it, they, they approached you specifically to create this, this stable coin um, across um, Polkadot. But it'd be really good to understand you know, how that came about. I, I wasn't aware that you were already building on, on parity prior to that. 
Yeah, sure. Um, so it's about two years ago, you know, we, we started looking at some sort of, you know, blockchain platform that we can build on, that we can customize for our own needs, rather than just, you know, e either have to deploy on a public network or have to build anything from the ground up. So is there anything in the middle? Um, so there are a number of reasons we actually chose uh, Substrate and also the parity technologies. Uh, you know, the, the, there's the technical side of it. There's also the non-tech side of it. So, um, so technically, um, I think, uh, you know, Substrate itself, even back then, it was bleeding edge, right? So there's a lot of breaking changes and we have to make a lot of, you know, uh, hard work to actually make things work. But still, way back when, it's still one of the toolkits or libraries out there that we can actually take and actually innovate on top of relatively easily. And the features are quite complete because for those who are actually unfamiliar with Substrate, uh, it is amazing. It is like... Uh, this app store that you can just install the app store and then you can keep installing new apps on top of it. It, it, is, it is like that. But from a developer perspective, you know, for example, if you are a protocol developer, you can still uh, build a chain, but without worrying all the underlying, the hardcore stuff, for example, peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, communication, you don't need to worry about, if you don't want to, uh, consensus, you don't need to worry about that, uh, or you know, how the web assembly or how the bytecodes gets interpreted. If you don't want to touch any of those underlying hardcore blockchain stuff, uh, you don't need to, right? Cryptography, you don't need to touch it. Uh, you can just focus on uh, the logics that you want to build for your, say, application or, or you, the purpose that you want to fulfill, the problems you want to solve. Um, you, you can actually develop your own module and then deploy on top of those chains to make it feature complete um, and then continuous uh, upgrade, right? Um, and then another cool thing about it is a forkless upgrade. Uh, uh, I think only when you get to a point where you, you, you have applications deployed on a chain that you realize, you know, especially like smart contracts, when you deployed it, you kind of think about it. You, you need to be very careful, right? Because once it's deployed, uh, even though you've got now, nowadays, you've got many mechanisms for migration, but still, you, you need to migrate, right? There's a part, there's a process. There's also, uh, you know, disruption of experience to the, to the user end and also to all the applications integrated with you. Uh, but with this Substrate framework, you can do almost anything, uh, you know, very, very smoothly uh, and also without forks. So an example that uh, you, you can think of is like, you can have a plain blockchain um, and then well, whenever you know new new tech comes out, for example, now on Substrate you can have uh, Ethereum virtual machine. Uh, it is developed like a module, so you can just like basically install that EVM module, um, and now your Substrate blockchain is EVM compatible. So you can now drop a Solidity smart contract onto your Substrate chain, and it can be deployed and run like, uh, like an Ethereum uh, you know, a blockchain. So, um, and then you know, think about you know, going forward, uh, there, there could be other uh, new technology being developed, new innovations comes out, and it will be as simple as going to the marketplace of Substrate and then you know, download and, and install that module, and then all of a sudden, your blockchain has that functionality. So th this is actually the first time I actually talk about it publicly uh, myself to actually uh, you know, to, people probably didn't realize how powerful this is because this actually fundamentally uh, increases the innovation time and also speed uh, to market dramatically. So uh, obviously, that's one of only one of the small shining points that we look at Substrate, more from a technologist or engineer perspective. But 
two other points that I want to point out why we actually chose uh, Polkadot in general. Um, and uh, one is actually the ecosystem, right? Um, I think uh, undoubtedly, you know, uh, Dr. Dr. Gavin Wood has a, a huge follower. And then, you know, personally and with all my founders, we all, you know, look up to what he's done uh, on Ethereum. Uh, you know, he, he basically wrote uh, most of the uh, EVM code um, and also his track record of delivery, right? So uh, we went to uh, Hangzhou, uh, the first Substrate Hackathon, where uh, my co-founder Brian was a uh, judge alongside with Gavin. Um, so uh, he, he, uh, so Gavin, uh, uh, in the evening, he gave a talk at a university. So we were there listening to his talk. Um, and then right after his talk, he come back down to the, uh, to the audience seats. And then I think uh, Alistair, his colleague, went up and talked. And then we saw Gavin put out his computer and start typing some code. Because um, we actually very, very close to the uh, uh, parity and subject GitHub repo. So we all subscribed to, you know, uh, Star or their project. And then, you know, a few minutes later, we saw a pull request. Right. So we saw the pull request, you know, like from Gavin. So he's he's actually at that uh, at that scene. And then, you know, uh, after his talk, he just did a pull request right there. So how many actually uh, founders are still doing that, you know, still coding, still very close to the technology and still pretty much, you know, 100 percent focused on uh, delivering the technology um, apart from, you know, preaching about it. Um, so so that was, you know, very, very, very impressive. Uh, from, from that perspective. Um, and also, of course, you know, that creates a huge following um, uh, for, for people who is actually believing uh, in Gavin, as well as the team he's built around him, as well as the technology that he's delivered. Um, and so, so right now, I think uh, Polkadot is probably one of the projects that's got most uh, uh, projects building on it. I think it's got 100 plus projects uh, building in the ecosystem, uh, parachains, uh, parathreads, etc. Um, and then the third thing that's probably also not most talk about is the bootstrapping. So, you know, we we, we have different options uh, for uh, scalability. So I think ease two is you know pretty cool, uh, but it takes a bit of time to come out. But you know, for ease two, uh, each of the uh, the shard, what they call. I think it's got 32 or 64 different shards when ETH2 come out. But each shard will be exactly the same, uh, but all of them will share the Ethereum's uh, uh, proof of stake security, right? Um, so that's one option. Um, and then another option that you can sort of compare and look at is probably like Cosmos, right? So, uh, you know, Cosmos also is sharding, um, but it's very different from ETH2 because each shard is very different. Uh, so each shard, you can just customize it and do very much different things. Uh, however, uh, what it doesn't do is it doesn't provide security to all of those uh, uh, hubs. I think that's what Cosmos calls it. So each hub will have to uh, come up with the, its own stake or, or, or security. So basically, each hub will actually need to do fundraising, right, um, to raise enough money so its, it's shard is actually secure. Um, so if you look at things from that angle, then uh, Polkadot occupies a different design space, per se. So uh, for Polkadot, uh, each shard is like, uh, is like more like Cosmos. Each shard is completely different. So it's completely uh, customizable, right? Um, and you can do anything on top of it. You can you can make it domain specific or, or anything you want to build on top. You can build uh, proof of work chains uh, using you know the substrate framework. Uh, you can build you know a gaming chain, etc. So I can go into a bit more of that how how I see things later. But so so from that regard, each shard is different. But also at the same time, 
uh, it's a little bit like East 2 where uh, uh, Polkadot, the, the main chain, the relay chain, what they call, uh, actually uh, provides security for all of us. So uh, from an entrepreneur perspective, you know, for, for us, building the technology is already hard enough, right? If you ask me to actually come up with, say, $100 million to bootstrap the network, because we're building DeFi, right? So DeFi already requires a very, very high level of security. So if, if you ask our team to actually also fundraise for $100 million or even, even probably higher uh, to actually bootstrap the network, I think that's... Uh, you, you're trying to set yourself up uh, for failure, basically. So I think in that regard, you know, Polkadot is also lower the barriers uh, for entrepreneurs to actually build and also bootstrap the chain. Uh, because uh, on day one, uh, say for Akala, on day one, we actually enjoyed, you know, Polkadot right now, uh, I think it's 5 billion, 5 billion market cap. So we actually enjoyed that much cap uh, uh, market cap translated into uh, network security that enjoyed for a color network, right? So uh, we don't have to worry about that perspective from day one. Uh, but we also get a choice because uh, as we move along and uh, become a more mature network, we do get a choice to break out of uh, Polkadot if we do want to, to become independent. So we have enough stake on our own. Uh, we can be our own sort of relay chain and also have other chains connected to us, but we also at the same time connect to Polkadot, right? So we, we can, we have, we have a bad pathway to graduate uh, down the track, but at the start, I think right now, this is probably the sweet spot that we currently in, you know, the tech uh, can allow us to uh, quickly innovate and build things uh, that's, you know, uh, very usable for our users, but also at the same time, economically, it is also helping us to bootstrap our network quite easily. So I think those uh, all in all are the sort of the main reasons why I think right now, more and more so, you know, we, we, we sort of uh, very, very passionate about, you know, Polkadot is going to bring quite a different flavor to the market because Polkadot is not quite a layer one. Uh, it's more of like a layer zero because it's, it's going to empower other blockchains. It's going to be able to integrate with Bitcoin, with Ethereum, uh, with all the bridges, but also at the same time host a number of uh, independent but connected chains like Akala so that the cross-chain sort of the uh, sort of the, uh, you know, the cross-chain picture is going to come to life quite quickly uh, because of that. I think the future will be multi-chain and it's healthier to be multi-chain and it's healthier to be inclusive um, and have all the liquidity and also usability all connected rather than everyone's operating and trying to, you know, optimize in their own island. Um, yeah, so, so that's sort of my view. I think it's a brilliant uh, explanation. It's the best explanation I've heard, actually, um, uh, both of a multi-chain world, but also specifically about Polkadot's uh, unique proposition or selling point in in that mix. And I think you know it's really interesting to hear from a founder and entrepreneur um, about you know we're, we're potentially at this point in the evolution or the cycle where finally a lot of the technology risk uh, is being you know taken off the the shoulders of the entrepreneur um, who who have often had to kind of just to execute on a use case build down in the stack um, to, to solve for their problem um, so I, I think that you know the promise of interoperability the idea that we can have a, a blockchain of blockchains, we can um, break out of silos. And of course, as you say, 
begin to have a shared security, but then also shared liquidity, I think are going to bring some very powerful, powerful network effects. So um, if we look at Akala specifically, it would be good, it'd be good to kind of break down its proposition. As I said, um, on the one hand, it's this, this stable coin proposition um, and, you know, you, you, a parachain where you're looking to effectively um, enable lots of different forms of, of OpenFi use cases or DeFi. Um, but it'd be good actually to understand why you say open open finance rather than DeFi. Is that is that deliberate? Yes and no. Like uh, we just feel that you know OpenFi is more inclusive uh, because it doesn't restrict to just you know the, the DeFi people and also limit ourselves to crypto. Uh, but we do recognize there is a probably a pathway for us to expand our sort of impact and adoption because in, initially you know it's gonna be still DeFi. Uh, still focus on the crypto users, but ultimately, you know, when um, I think this is not just Akala, but more of like everyone in the space, well, you know, th th there will be one day that we actually expand out of just call ourselves, you know, crypto world, uh, actually expand to the mainstream, right? And then when that actually happen, uh, it's it's better to use more generic terms and then use the language other people can actually understand and accept, um, and also build the products that probably hides away a lot of the complexity of blockchain. And people don't even need to know blockchain exists as long as it can provide them, you know, the cheaper, faster, easier and more stable, accessible finance, uh, financial services to all of these people, then they will be happy, right? So w whether you're using internet, using, you know, Web3 technology or, or, or other type of technology that may come at times, it probably doesn't matter. So that's sort of when we first founded Akala, um, we sort of used more of the more generic terms, open finance. But you know, uh, and, uh, and and now though we use more of DeFi, um, only because we think we have a, a, a sort of a gradual path towards that open fi. I think ultimately it's going to be open uh, to everyone. But right now we're just like working our way through uh, the the circle of influence, if, if you like, from crypto all the way out. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting that you kind of plan for where you want to land, not where you are now. So on the one hand, of course, you're, you're servicing this demand um, around DeFi, but but equally, as you say, you know, you, you need to have a vision that um, grows the market that can resonate and connect with um, a different customer base. So I think that's uh, it's really interesting that you, you've elected to do that. Um, so yeah, could, so let's explain, let's unpack what, what Akala is from a kind of feature or, or function perspective? Right now we say Akala is the DeFi hub or finance or decentralized finance hub uh, on Polkadot's uh, multi-chain universe. Um, and then for that DeFi hub, we uh, provide a suite of uh, financial primitives. Um, and the reason why we don't just build a chain and then call it a finance chain is because we believe there is a minimum set of primitives uh, uh, that needs to be developed to actually be able to bootstrap the whole sort of DeFi ecosystem. Um, and then these basic building blocks, uh, namely are, uh, you know, decentralized stablecoin. I don't think I need to explain too much why that is the reason, um, but there are a couple of others that are unique to uh, our network. Um, the, the, the second primitive we built is the trustless staking derivative. Um, this is built because on a proof-of-state network, the dynamic is quite different from proof-of-work, right? So right now, Bitcoin and Ethereum. So uh, on Polkadot, um, uh, in a sense, you know, proof-of-stake also generates yield 
So it's naturally in competition with any of the yield generating activity, you know, namely DeFi activities, right? So there's a natural competition there. Um, and on one hand, um, you, uh, you, know, you, you don't actually want DeFi to have too high a yield because then you attract all the staking uh, assets to DeFi and then it may actually compromise security, uh, which, which actually compromise you know, also DeFi security. So you don't want to do that. So what we've done is we created this trustless uh, staking derivative where uh, we can release some of the derived value out of the locked uh, staking assets. So uh, for example, you, know, you, you can actually stake your DOT through Akala and then you will get a receipt called liquid dot or L dot out. So that relationship is a little bit like when you deposit your die into compound in order to earn an interest, and then in your wallet you actually you know get a C die out, right? So so for for us it's the L dot that you get in return, and then if you just sit on the L dot token, uh, it basically it's yield bearing. So you will you will be earning staking yield uh, by just holding that token, um, and obviously it is a liquid token as well, it's like an ERC20 type token, so you can transfer it. You can also use it for other DeFi activities. So for example, uh, you can use that as a collateral to borrow uh, more US dollars out of it, right? So, and then that actually creates quite a unique scenario where um, your LDOT token uh, is yield earning. So you're earning some you know, interest or yield out of that token, but at the same time, you uh, collateralize it, right? So you pay some interest to actually get more uh, stable coin uh, for trading or other purposes. So uh, yeah, so that creates sort of a, a new use case uh, there for, uh, for folks uh, to use. Um, and then the, uh, so, so that's the second uh, primitive that we have uh, we think it's necessary. And then the third one is a, a decentralized exchange, so it's a DEX. Um, it is a constant product, uh, DEX. Um, uh, just from hearing that, there's nothing unique about it, but there's a reasons why we built it. Um, so first of all, um, obviously, you know, when uh, there are, you know, a number of tokens happened on the DeFi chain, you need somewhere to trade uh, and list those coins, right? Uh, including, you know, DOTs and, and also coins from other parachains, right? So there are quite a lot of them. So DEX uh, is required, um, but that's not sort of the core reason. Uh, another reason is uh, our DEX actually serve as a unified liquidity uh, provisioning uh, mechanism uh, on, uh, on the chain. So on Akala, because we, we say, uh, so, so my view is like uh, Polkadot provides the underlying communication and also security and trust layer. Uh, and each chain built on top of Polkadot, so those parachains, uh, they're meant to be, um, so technologically, they will be full stack, right? Because as I said, with Substrate, any new innovation come out, everyone can just in-store. So uh, chains can hardly differentiate from a technical perspective, per se. Um, but they can differentiate themselves from a use case or domain, per se. So, uh, so if you solve a particular problem really well, uh, then your chain will be a preferred sort of lending area for uh, dApps or users, etc. So for Akala, you know, we sort of try to optimize or occupy the domain of finance or, or DeFi, right? Um, and then the, one of the things that we did was uh, we have this flex fee uh, feature built in. So uh, any of the accepted tokens can be used as fees. So for uh, so for example, for Bitcoin that's bridged onto Akala, um, you can immediately use Bitcoin as the fee token because 
you know, the chances are if you are new to the uh, ecosystem, you don't own any DOTs, you don't own any Akala tokens. You only got your Bitcoin, right? So once you land on Akala, if Bitcoin is an accepted fee token, you can use that to transact, right? It's completely transparent to, to user. Um, and you can you can do uh, uh, trading. Uh, you can you can collateralize your Bitcoin to, to get some US dollars. Uh, all of that are paid in Bitcoin if you want, right? So um, and technically, how that actually happened is we use the DAX as the underlying liquidity pool, uh, uh, also as a settlement layer for that to happen. Um, so so that's one of the main reasons we have it. And then another one is also related to stablecoin is when the liquidation happened, uh, we also use DEX as one of the supplementary uh, liquidation uh, uh, liquidity provisioning uh, alongside with our auctions, etc. So that's also quite key to provide uh, stability to, uh, to our stablecoin. So uh, yeah, so those are the number of reasons why we built those uh, primitives. And we think with this set of primitives, it will be enough uh, for us to power uh, the ecosystem, serve the initial sort of the Polkadot users, but also at the same time enough for others to come and build on top of uh, build on top of us. So I think right now it's probably serving us well. So for example, uh, projects like you know Ren, uh, you know they they chose to land on Akala and and bring Bitcoin, and also soon enough I think there are other assets that they will be. Uh, like from Ethereum, et cetera, to bring onto uh, Akala, but also wider Polkadot ecosystem. So yeah, so, so that's sort of the direction that uh, we are heading as well. Interesting. So do you think that you know, your, what you're creating as a parachain um, specific to DeFi, does that compete with Ethereum? How does it, or how does it compete with the monopoly that Ethereum currently has on certain, certainly the liquidity um, and the, the range of different DeFi applications that are happening? Do you compete? Are you synergetic, synergetic or are, are you actually, is there's a kind of low-hanging fruit there? So rather than go after the whole thing, there's some obvious low-hanging fruit where your configuration and trade-offs are going to be a better fit. I would just say, you know, building a domain-specific parachain uh, is a new category. Um, I, I do get asked a lot, you know, how do you compare, you know, which product specifically you are like on Ethereum. Uh, it's hard to pick one because, uh, you know, if you, if right now, you know, Akala is actually a blockchain on its own, right? So uh, it is a different, uh, it is a different category. Uh, that we are creating out there. Uh, because now we actually jump out of the Solidity sandbox. Because every single smart contract or protocol that you deploy on Ethereum, you are inside the Solidity sandbox. There are things you can do, and most stuff uh, concerning economics, concerning you know how the transaction works, how the fees are paid, uh, etc. You cannot change, right? So whereas on Akala and and what Akala chain provides is you can actually break the sandbox, right? You you don't need to you know develop or innovate inside that sandbox. In here, you can actually change down to the chain logic. That that's why you know we can quite easily implement you know flex fee type of feature that allows people uh, have have better use experience, right? And this things is like you can do a lot of you know hacks on Ethereum to achieve, but not quite change the chain logic to actually do it seamlessly, right? As a as a first class citizen per se. Um, and then another thing that uh, we can also do like uh, on, on here is like Oracle, right? So uh, we, we can build in a quality of service to make Oracle uh, transactions uh, as a prioritized transaction. So 
doesn't matter how congested, if ever the network is going to be congested, and uh, your Oracle transaction can always be accepted uh, into the block. So, so that which actually means any dApps built on top of Akala, they will always get the uh, up-to-date price fee, right? So this, obviously this is just a, uh, an example, but it actually shows how much uh, customization and flexibility that you can actually employ on Akala chain, right? Um, and this is this is this is outside of Solidity Box sandbox that you can do those innovations, um, and um, and also I think it just shows the potential because what we've done so far is only the problems in front of our eyes, and then we look at what happened on Black Thursday and also other sort of issues that we face uh, collectively in, in the industry that we now provide solution and solve those problems and hope to provide a better experience. But I'm sure, you know, as we move forward, there will be other new ideas and also new problems we face. And, and the fundamental thing to that is uh, have the ability to address those problems by having ability to innovate and also upgrade the chain. And this is what Akala is capable of. So we've, we've gone through a number of upgrades, even on our testnet, um, to be able to incorporate new features, uh, new fixes, without actually breaking any of the uh, user experience flow, uh, as well as any of the integration, right? So um, yeah, so I think uh, from, from that regard, it is quite a different beast uh, to say Ethereum or any other chain. Um, and also, you know, specifically to DeFi, um, I, I don't think, you know, it's sort of trying to compete per se, but it's more of trying to grow the category of DeFi together uh, because, you know, uh, I think now I don't need to say the word, you know, arguably, because, you know, DeFi on Ethereum now is getting uh, more and more congested um, and also is probably reaching uh, the ceiling or the capacity of what uh, uh, Ethereum can actually handle, right? Um, and also at the same time, I think it becomes a whale game. Um, I don't know whether it's by intention or not, but it's just the market and also the incentive and also the gas price push the market to that direction if you're not whale it's not economically viable for you to do any transactions on Ethereum. And that's not, you know, Web3 or decentralization stands for, because it's, it's meant to be democratizing finance for everyone, right? And obviously, we're not heading that direction right now. But I think we can help out Ethereum a bit, uh, because right now you're doing everything on one generalized uh, computer. Um, we can do better by creating more options um, and also more trading spaces, uh, more cross-chain liquidity for people to trade in. Um, if you have more farmlands, right, and a, a bigger space um, and more places to innovate uh, at different levels, then I'm sure, you know, then, then uh, you know, the, uh, the, the sort of the ethos of decentralization and, and democratizing will, will come back to the scene. And everyday people can actually start using those uh, systems again. So for, for Akala, we are more of like uh, trying to see how we can actually help out some of the protocols right now on Ethereum, how they can actually scale up. So for example, um, although I can't disclose uh, names uh, directly, but there are a couple of projects that we're helping with is they're looking at, you know, like um, they still have majority of their values and users on Ethereum, but how can Akala help them out uh, to uh, maybe do uh, the, the more uh, computational intense uh, or trading engine uh, on Akala and, and, and make the user experience much cheaper, faster, 
um, and better for their users, um, you know, without losing the community uh, over at Ethereum. So there are many different ways, right? So because on Akala, we've got smart contracts, um, you know, you can deploy directly Solidity contract. There are multiple bridges being built, both from uh, Bitcoin and also Ethereum, and with different flavors, right? So there are many ways that, you know, uh, and now we can explore to help those folks out to actually bring uh, yeah, to, to up-level the user experience, basically. So, yeah, so I don't see too much competition, but more of like complementary or try to grow the DeFi category together. That, that, that would be the summary. Yeah, I think it's a really good way of putting it. And of course, you know, the idea of sharing some of the economic load, um, both with Ethereum and Bitcoin, and then allowing DeFi to serve um, a, a, a different segments, as you say, perhaps a more classic retail um, participant. I mean, you, you could argue in a way it's been a blessing in disguise that um, uh, more retail investors haven't been able to participate in a lot of the things that have been going on. But at the same time, you know, the if we're to fulfill the, 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 the ambition and the dream of Web3 and DeFi, then clearly that democratization is, uh, is, is very important. Um, so I also know, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, this idea of decentralization or progressive decentralization um, is very important to you. It's something I've written about in the past. Uh, I refer to it as a pathway to decentralization. Um, so in a way, it allows you to iterate as a startup in a, a perhaps more centralized way, but then increasingly decentralized. And I know your ultimate KPI is if you can effectively uh, dissolve into the network and, and, and remove yourselves. But it'd be really good to understand how you approach decentralization and that progressive pathway from a planning perspective. Uh, yeah, sure. That's a great question, Jamie, there. Uh, right, right from the get-go, uh, you know, we, we set ourselves uh, what, what we think is a reasonable goal uh, just to be able to uh, re remove ourselves from the scene one day and, and uh, the network is still functioning and uh, have enough resource and also decision-making apparatus for it to continue to operate. So that would be the ultimate goal. Um, and then how we get there uh, is we thought about this concept of you know, gradual uh, decentralization. So it's like initially you still need a, a startup or uh, an organization, uh, off-chain organization like Akala, uh, right now, the team uh, and engineers to actually bootstrap both the development as well as the community. Um, and then gradually, you know, like uh, some of those controls and decision making uh, will be uh, ported onto the chain uh, because part of, you know, Polkadot and also Akala's uh, actually shining point is the governance. So on-chain governance. So there is a uh, decision making apparatus uh, and also execution apparatus on chain that we can, you know, vote for things, uh, for example, uh, vote for new changes or upgrade uh, or uh, changes to economic parameters, even change the monetary policy if needed. Uh, all those can be voted on chain um, and also can be executed, right? So we can say, uh, now we want to change the monetary policy or we don't want to change the interest rate, for example, uh, say from 5% to 20%, right? Quite a dramatic change. And we can, we can say on chain, uh, please execute it you know, over the next three months so we don't blow up the e economy uh, uh, in, in one go. So it's like soften the blow per se. So we can do, technically we can do all of that. So you know, with, with that guarded uh, uh, sort of technology there, uh, our plan is like gradually we'll move a lot of this decision making onto a color chain. Um, and then initially it will be a council uh, governed 
system. So council was more like elected members of the community. Uh, so they will be delegated decision makers uh, to actually uh, to, to help guide the development as well as uh, you know s some of the changes uh, in the network. So that is more decentralized than just like one team governing. And obviously, you know, the, the founding team will play a role in, in the council, will take, probably take some seats from the councils, but there will be external members or the community members participate in the council uh, election as well as decision making. Um, and then that will be sort of the initial phase just to make sure that uh, all the economic uh, parameters that we set are right, and uh, if there's any dramatic uh, things happen, we can act really quickly. And even for the councils, we divide them uh, up into general council to look after the entire chain's operation, but also we have a technical committee uh, who actually will look after maybe attacks, maybe significant bugs that require immediate action that need to prioritize all the, all the voting and also execution of the upgrade to fix the bug, etc. So, so the council is actually divided, for, uh, divided up uh, by their function. Um, and then move forward though, beyond that point, uh, we're going to enable uh, democracy uh, on the chain. So democracy means uh, all the councils will be elected by all the token holders, and at the same time, there's a referendum uh, being enabled on the chain. So uh, that means anyone uh, with, with that kind of token, they can propose new changes uh, uh, to the chain. And also, you know, they, they can also do things like uh, there's a treasury uh, in Alcala, and they can, you know, uh, you know, propose they want to do some work for the chain or do some development or bug fixing, and they can ask for treasury to, to fund them or tip them, for example. And we will enable that part of it, and that will actually uh, move more control away from the founding team and into the hands uh, of communities uh, by enabling that uh, democracy function. Um, and also alongside with that mechanism, that governance mechanism, uh, we also have a decentralized sovereign wealth fund. Um, because for each chain on Polkadot, uh, you actually require certain amount of DOT being bonded for you to actually uh, to enjoin or get access to Polkadot security. Th that's a long story, but I won't go into I won't go into details. But basically, with this wealth fund, we can actually uh, collect all the surpluses that have been generated by the network and then put it into this wealth fund. And then you can take the analogy of a country or the nation's wealth fund, like Norway's wealth fund. Um, the purpose of it is basically you don't spend uh, all the money that you earn within the uh, within the financial year, uh, but you save it and then you reinvest it in valuable assets that probably can hedge your uh, your domestic economics. So, for example, for Norway, they will just like invest in foreign companies, um, non-oil related, which is their main uh, economic, you know, uh, income generator. So it's basically like a hedge, but also invest into the future. So uh, for Akala, we, we take the inspiration, um, and then we will use those surplus to, for example, invest in foreign. Uh, reserve, like foreign currency. So, for example, we can invest in DOT uh, for a number of reasons. You know, uh, th these reserves will need to be valuable, uh, maybe also yield earning, and also have certain utility. So, you know, DOT probably fits all those three categories, right? Apart from we can stake the DOT and earn return, we can also use those DOT to purchase more security for Akala. So, uh, if we have enough of those, then Akala can be truly self-solvent, right? So, we, we don't need to require 
you know, external sort of support for us to be sustainable and perpetual uh, going forward. And, and, and most importantly, out of all of those I said is those uh, wealth fund is a trustless one. So it's going to be owned by collectively by the entire chain through those governance apparatus, right? So through, through you know, like referendum and, and individual voting um, and govern. So this is really, you know, like I think, I think uh, I'm going to coin it as a DAO 3.0. Right. So, so this is where, so this is where you know it's not just a simple smart contract that you deposit funds and not sure how to do with it. But this is both uh, you, you you have a way to uh, acquire resources uh, and also you have a way to uh, make decisions and also make your legislation and also execute all those uh, all those laws and and changes. Right. So yeah. So down through portal there I said it. I, I love it. A decentralized sovereign wealth fund and again i I really love the way that you um described how you can effectively function as this self-sovereign entity and i I can imagine many more similar uh digital states um uh, adopting this kind of policy so if we look at the if we look at DeFi, i mean on the one hand you know we already know the kind of complexities of governance around just the decentralized network um, are already pretty complicated. Now uh, in DeFi, which effectively is a a war for liquidity and increasingly a war for collateral, new forms of collateral um, to be uh, staked within uh, within the network. But effectively, if I I try to simplify this down, and you you may do a better job than me at this, there is this tension um, between efficiency and yield. So on the one hand, that liquidity is seeking yield, as much yield as it could get. Um, You could argue there's perhaps another dimension of risk against that yield. Um, And then if you look at efficiency, you could say there are subsets to efficiency. So on the one hand, there is, of course, anything that is a tax, fees, um, and that may or may not be linked to governance, which is kind of, I guess, the perception of an, a, either a real inefficiency or the perception of an inefficiency. So, for example, um, one of the big trends at the moment, at least in theory, is this idea of a fair launch, the idea that a DeFi project can be launched without VCs participating and people are trying to delineate now that, well, this is a VC project, therefore, but presumably it is inefficient, it is um, uh, in, in a way that it's going to be governed versus something that's seen as much uh, purer because it's backed purely by um, by uh, what what is classed as a retail investor. But of course, there's a there's a spectrum there. So. You know, in my mind, it seems like DeFi is trying to seek this equilibrium between efficiency and yield. And, and that is the, the, the dilemma that every project in DeFi must try to balance. I think uh, Kyle of um, uh, uh, Multicoin referred to it as the DeFi paradox. How do you, do you understand it in the same way? And, you know, wh- what do you think are the points of substance and perhaps things that are a distraction. I think that 
uh, in, in a way, is like uh, super great questions uh, because I'm sure you're going to get all sorts of different uh, answers to it. Um, but my personal view is that, you know, I think um, so-called you farming, right, is basically putting an incentive, a mechanism to actually bootstrap a community, right? So uh, more, more in the crust of it. Um, I think it's a, it's a great mechanism, uh, uh, especially at the very beginning of uh, community bootstrapping. Um, you're putting some incentive there will actually help that uh, process. Uh, but if you are taking you uh, farming to an extreme where your entire product uh, is you farming, um, then you will get into that uh, sort of uh, like, like, like a rabbit hole, right? You, you can only go uh, deeper and deeper without being able to coming out of it. If you farming is the only purpose of the entire launch or majority of the, of the product suite. Um, so I think... Uh, ultimately, um, even though a lot of these new innovations come out like to incentivize your community, um, I think one thing we always need to fall back onto is the fundamentals, right? So uh, what is your product doing? What values do you create? And then uh, are there many you know, actual users using your products? Um, and what are the transaction volume? Um, and you know, those, those sort of like fundamentally uh, how you judge a good product um, and also what sort of impact and value it actually brings to actual people, right? Um, may have one way or another impacts their actual life. I think those are the sort of things that you al we always need to take a step back and look at those fundamentals, uh, sort of aside from just like incentives and you farming. Um, if we are using you farming and incentives as a means, um, that's great. If you treat it as an end, then you're doomed to collapse one day, right? It's just like. Uh, today or tomorrow. It's, it's just like timing, right? So um, so that's my personal view on you farming. And we can see a lot of mania happening right now on, on Ethereum. You know, some, some of them are very interesting experiments, right? Um, but some of them uh, are probably just for the purpose of you farming. Um, and, you know, uh, I think greed is something that uh, we can consciously tell is there. But sometimes when, when it's you, uh, you know, individual is quite hard to actually uh, quite hard to actually avoid it. Um, I think time and time again, I think history can tell uh, that every time individuals fall into it, right? So um, I, was I was reading um, a book recently on uh, you know history on uh, France and Europe, and it talks about Mississippi uh, bubble uh, and also South Sea bubble, right? So th those are quite well-known sort of uh, economic uh, bubbles that happened in the past, like thousands, uh, like a long time ago, right? So, uh, but we, we seem to repeat those patterns again and again, and in a shorter in a shorter time period uh, now in DeFi, right? What used to happen like in a fifty-year time frame, now it's like in a five-day or even five-hour time frame. So I think I think it's like. Um, yeah, so I think that's something that everyone needs to sort of uh, be aware of um, uh, uh, in, in general. I think it's not a uh, either or question. Like, if you want to bootstrap uh, a project, uh, you either go for VC um, or uh, you just go for token distribution, right? Um, I don't think it's an either or. I think you could have both, and then they optimize for different purposes. So uh, to me, you know, uh, going for VC. Uh, obviously, you get capital uh, from VC, so you optimize for capital uh, raising. Um, and then the second thing is you optimize for partnership because usually 
so for a team like Akala, uh, uh, you know, 10 of us, nine uh, are engineers, right? So we have no idea about, say, uh, market making, how liquidity works, you know, how anything other than engineering work. Um, so uh, a lot of the VCs that we meet, uh, they have uh, they they have uh, complementary skills to us, and also market knowledge, and also uh, various different uh, connections that could help us to actually bootstrap the network. Um, so we optimize for that, um, and also the third thing I would say for VC is they are built for to suck up the risk. Right, so, so that's why we fundraise from these folks because they can suck up uh, all the risks or all the all potential loss, right? So because the chances of a startup will actually be successful is quite lean, uh, to, to be to be to be fair. Um, so those will be the reasons why you would go for a, a VC, um, and also you can have a VC fundraise as well as a token distribution. Um, so uh, a token distribution uh, doesn't matter which form. Uh, will optimize for a, a number of things also. So token distribution, uh, so either ICO or, or some other ways that I'll talk about in Akala, we're doing initial parishing offering, which is a different, very, very, uh, quite a new way uh, to uh, distribute tokens. Um, so obviously it's for distributing our tokens to as many people as possible. Um, uh, it is also uh, bootstrapping the network, bootstrapping a community, and also providing an incentive for initial users. Uh, to come and use the network, right? So if you are doing uh, token distribution or so-called fair launch, then uh, you are trying to optimize for that, right? Um, you may also fundraise through token distribution. Uh, I think ICO uh, uh, falls into that category, but obviously, you know, retail, uh, you're putting a lot of risk uh, into the retail users if you are doing that. So, uh, so I believe you know you can actually have both and optimize for different purposes. And for Akala, you know we've done uh, a bit of fundraising. We didn't raise too much money. We raised enough to be able to operate in the next couple of years, basically. So we don't. So for our token distribution, we don't need to raise uh, fundraise from individuals per se, but we can still distribute our tokens out. Uh, pretty fairly. So for our uh, token distribution, we have this initial parachain offering. So it is a uh, so what we call a ethical, useful, uh, net positive uh, token distribution. So basically, you uh, you lock your dots uh, in order to help Akala to secure a parachain on Polkadot. So that is the useful part of it. So you're doing you lock your token for a purpose, right? To help us to gain access to Polkadot security. Um, and then in return, you know, we distribute our tokens to users. And majority of Akala's token, 34%, uh, I actually reserved for this type of distribution. So uh, we're going to uh, distribute majority of that 34% uh, for this in this initial parishing offering process. Um, and then also a portion of that will be used for the initial uh, liquidity mining uh, to distribute to the users. So, uh, and also at the same time, uh, how do you avoid, you know, like uh, speculators? Because uh, all those bubbles that I pointed out in the past is that the intention is always great. So the intention is always good to actually have liquidity in the economy and the market so you can, you know, build things and you can have more activities and uh, more, more labor in the market to do things. But ultimately, it, it becomes a bubble because of too many speculation, right? So people only chase the face value of the token, or back then it was the notes, right, uh, from the bank. Um, and how, how do you avoid that? So, uh, you know, we, I, I think no one has the perfect answer right now. So a number of things that we thought about uh, is 
one is like um, we we can put on a vesting schedule on the distributed token, um, but we don't we don't want well we want people to participate in a network activity, but also at the same time to reduce certain amount of speculation. So what we're going to do is we are going to distribute the whole amount. Uh, of the balance to individuals, right? So say if you put down certain number of dots and you receive certain number of ACA tokens, we're gonna give you the whole balance. And you can use that full balance to say, participate in voting and governance of the chain. So you can still operate as a stakeholder uh, of the Akala chain. Uh, but uh, the transfer functionality, the speculation part of it, like transfer and sell part of it, it's gonna be vested through a number of you know, uh, time. And then it, it could be, we could release that per block. So you're gradually getting more and more tokens in, 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 in your wallet that you can transfer. But that sort of reduces the speculation part. So there's probably more ways that we can think about to to improve that process, but um, I think you know, uh, I think everyone who's launching a product should actually think about that way rather than um, you know just just pure trying to get as many users into the door as as possible uh, uh, when, when you launch, but without worrying about how you actually keep them, right? Um, and then we also put in mechanisms on each one of our protocol um, so that people who participate and also early participants they will also be able to do liquidity mining, but also in a way that is you know, uh, less speculative. So in that way, I think we also attract the audience or the users that we want, like a community that's more sticky, uh, that actually believes in our longer term vision, and also who's actually want to participate in things like governance and you know, uh, various activities on the chain. So, so that's our current thinking right now for, for that part. Yeah, and I think that's really useful for a lot of founders. Um, of course, you know, as we're entering, I mean, whilst it's still volatile, I think, you know, the general direction has been upwards uh, in the markets. And certainly it's been a seller's market. Projects that are raising capital have been finding it much easier than certainly they had been doing uh, even even six months ago, let alone a year ago. Um, so not not rushing into a lot of these decisions just to quickly um, mop, mop up money is going to be a temptation that many founders are going to have to uh, resist, but clearly um, there's some precedent set by projects such as Akala that they can learn from and, and, and borrow from. So finally, um, I'd love to talk to you about you know DeFi in Asia. I know that you're in New Zealand, you're in Oceania, you're slightly removed from what's going on, say in mainland China. Although your your kind of co-founders um, have more of a presence there, but um, you know I've. I, I looked at um, a few people to gain insights on that market, and David Wan's uh, um, uh, one of those people. And it was wasn't until very recently that she was saying anybody in mainland China was remotely interested in in DeFi. Um, I believe uh, just in the last week, we're now in early September. The number of mentions of DeFi has dramatically increased on on WeChat. Uh, anecdotally, what are you seeing happen um, in in DeFi in Asia right now? Uh, yeah, good question, uh, Jamie. Um, obviously, I'm not on, on the ground uh, in China. Um, I, I am having uh, quite a number of conversations with my co-founders who's in Shanghai. Um, so I've, I have my personal take on why that happens, right? So uh, a number of reasons is like, uh, one, you know, the Chinese uh, sort of users, they have very different user uh, uh, habits. So they don't use browsers very much. 
So if you if you look at so so if I use so I use you know Compound and all the other DeFi products, most of them I use it on a browser, right? So I have to uh, get my MetaMask plugin, um, and then I have to go through those routes. So most of the Chinese, or uh, maybe or if I'm not exaggerating, uh, on mobile. So uh, you know the sort of normal uh, DeFi experience is not too normal to those users. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why. Uh, they weren't that hot uh, previously. Um, and then the second thing is like most of the DeFi I can see, uh, they haven't got international, sort of I I internationalized or localized to the Chinese audience, right? So there's a huge language barrier there uh, for these folks to, to actually use. Um, and then that language also translates into not just the product translation, but also uh, how those DeFi concepts get uh, packaged up and educated uh, to those users are also lacking as well, uh, because you can see from the Web two world, uh, usually uh, it's divided into two, you know, Western and, and Chinese sort of tech uh, companies, right? Uh, the, the products may, uh, from a ten thousand feet, might look similar, but very subtly, there's a lot of you know behavior uh, and also user experience differences that actually divides up the two markets, right? So I think those two are probably one of the reasons why, you know, previously, you know, those folks uh, haven't got very engaged uh, into, the, into the scene. Um, and then the thirdly is like, I'm in touch with quite a number of like KOL, so they call key opinion leaders uh, in China. Um, so, so these folks actually have done a great job, I think in the past that uh, actually, uh, well, translate or, or use their own way to interpret and also educate the markets in China. So they usually have a great following uh, in the Chinese crypto community. Um, and then they actually break down the things into chunks and then put it, and then uh, quite a number of them I know, uh, they use the uh, U-farming products themselves, right? Like Wi-Fi and, and others. Uh, and then they actually actually bring those their personal experience and into a much wider audience. And all of a sudden, you get this sort of following effect of people trying to participate. But at the same time, you know, I think there are also products being built that's more catered for the Chinese market. Um, and hence, you will see like a surge uh, of activities and, and interest from there. Um, that, I, mean, I mean, that's just my sort of personal view, looking uh, from a distance, um, what, what actually happened. Yeah, Betty, really insightful. It's been fascinating talking to you. Um, I think you've really helped a lot of listeners firstly understand what's going on at Polkadot, um, but given them some food for thought when they're thinking about how they're designing incentives in their economy and then, of course, um, understanding how they may be bridging out into Asia, Southeast Asia. So um, thank you so much for your time. It's been great having you on the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Jamie, for having me. Uh, great chat. Thanks. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.